This is your time to lit up with Angela Breidenbach. Lit up is lighting up the literary world with book reviews, in-depth expert interviews, and ideas for you to design a lucrative writing career. Expand your imagination to enhance your life. Lit up is always family friendly, always good for your heart. Now here is your host to lit up, Angela Breidenbach. Has anyone ever said to you, man, that'd make a good story, or you should put that down on paper, but you don't feel like you can do it? Those fears in your head, I can't let anyone read my stories. Who cares about what I have to say? Who would read anything I wrote anyway? I'm not special enough or original enough. If those are the fears flying through your mind like a plague of locusts, eating up your confidence each time you sit down to write, all those fears and more boil down to one problem, feeling unworthy. But you are worthy. God gave you a voice and all those ideas swirling in your head for a reason. To write them so that you can make a difference in the world, so that you can touch another person's heart. Let's tackle those fears together, because you are worthy to write. Pick up your copy of Worthy to Write on Amazon. Hi, this is Angela Breidenbach, and I have a wonderful guest here with me today who also is a friend. Her name is Cynthia L. Simmons. She's a writer, she's a speaker, and she is a wonderful lady. I've had the opportunity to be at writing conferences with her and at some different events where we've just been able to get to know each other a little bit. And I'm just really thrilled to bring her here so you can get to know her as she tells you a little bit about the true historical love story that comes out of the Civil War era. Cynthia L. Simmons has her own podcast, and I want her to, real quick, tell you a little bit about that, and then we're going to dive into the love story of the Macaulay family. Hi, Cynthia. Welcome. Hi. It's good to be with you, Angela. Can you tell us what the name of your podcast is in case somebody would like to listen to you more after our show? Yes, it's Heart of the Matter Radio. I do stream live on Thursdays, and then I post as a podcast on my website, which is clsimmons.com. That is awesome. And I'll probably have you repeat that toward the end of the show so folks have a chance to um, pick it up and listen to you a couple times. But right now, folks, I want you to sit back with a cup of tea or a coffee or, if you're anything like me, an energy drink. And we're going to entertain you a little bit with the past of our country, that all of us have come together to be who we are because of the people that went before. And it's so honoring to be able to share these kinds of stories. Cynthia, what got you interested in um, the Civil War era? Well, I'm interested in any kind of history. And the Civil War was kind of handy because I grew up in a town where there was a battle fought. I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and that was kind of a major city for the North to take because all the railroads ran through there. So it was kind of opening the South to them. So because I grew up with all that stuff, I naturally was interested. I you know, grew up climbing on cannons and stuff like that, which now they don't let you do. But that was a real easy transition to research. And I'm the kind of person who loves to read anything that somebody wrote 150 years ago. And so you give me a diary or a bunch of letters and I am in heaven. I love it. 
I'm right there with you. I, in fact, have a copy of my grandfather's autobiography that I'm redoing so that people are able to get it by, you know, ebook and that kind of thing. I haven't titled it yet, though. I also have a copy of my grandmother's. She had just written one. I swear that that paper, maybe it was four or five inches square. And she wrote front, back, mm-hmm. front, back for about 20, yeah. 30 pages. And I think it was in pencil. So I did take it to a copier. Mm-hmm. And I copied it and I blew it up so that it was, you know, closer to the standard size, mainly so I could preserve it and actually read it. So, folks, I'm going to give you a tip today about genealogy, how to trace your genealogy, those kinds of things. Making sure you start with the closest relatives, your, your family, your parents, your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents. You start there and then you go backward in time. And the reason is you can find things like Cynthia just mentioned, letters and journals and diaries from people that are either still alive today or that their family members have not gotten rid of their papers and things like this. A lot of people think the those papers, those journals and those certificates, uh, I just had a really tough time finding my grandfather's wedding, his marriage certificate to my grandmother. And I just got notified this morning that they found it. Now, what I'm hoping is it's his with my grandma, my grandmother, and not his with his first wife who passed away, you know, without having children. But if you can get together any of these actual documents, these are what they call proofs. They're proof of life that these people existed. But if you want to trace back your genealogy and know that they're really your people, for instance, we've mentioned my people is not likely the Thomas Nelson Jr. that signed the Declaration of Independence. My people is Thomas Nelson Jr. and Sr. that were in the 1st Battalion, the Rifleman in Pennsylvania. The other guy was from Virginia. So in order to have proof that these people existed, you have to find some sort of real documentation. So letters, journals that can clue you in that these are real people are very, very helpful. And I understand, Cynthia, you found a website that helped you trace the Macaulay family. I did, but I found a lot of stuff in the Chattanooga Library as well as, you know, just letters and diaries that have been published. At this point, one of the brothers, uh, one of the great-grandsons actually, published Thomas Hook Macaulay's memoirs. And so you can actually buy the books. After I did all the digging in the library, I discovered that, yeah, that was there too. So, yes, there is a, there are lots of sites actually online where you can do that. And uh, I have used one of them, and it's very helpful to be able to find relatives and so on. So what was the, the uniqueness about this story, the Macaulay family? Well, it was interesting to me because I grew up going up and down Chattanooga streets, and a lot of them were called Macaulay Avenue and things like that. The name was there. And so I discovered there was a family named Macaulay. I got interested in the family, of course, and began to research. And it happened that before Chattanooga was named Chattanooga, it was Ross's Landing. And Mr. Macaulay's father had come when he was a little boy, and then he had kind of grown up in Chattanooga. As he got older, he decided to go away to seminary, so he left town, and he thought he was never going to go back. What happened was that after he decided to go to seminary, he had, you know, all his friends were graduating and getting married, and he didn't have anybody on his mind at all. But he decided to join the denomination that his father had been in, and so he had to go to Cleveland, Tennessee to do that. 
while he was there, there was a little party given for the people that were going to join the denomination. And he saw a woman by the name of Ellen, and she was very pretty, but she was also very demure and very um, self-controlled. She was a, a very small person, very small features, but brilliant and very, very sweet. Well, he was very attracted, but at that point, he had taken the church to Mississippi, so he figured he would never see her again. Well, he did take the church to Mississippi, and while he was there, he met her aunt, and he thought, well, this is really good, but, you know, I'm never going to see this lady again unless God will, so he was just going to forget about it. So it happened that his father passed away, and he still lived in Chattanooga, so he ended up having to go home to Chattanooga to take care of his mother, who was also ill and to settle his father's affairs. So he needed a job, and he started applying at churches, and he got a church in Cleveland, Tennessee, which is about 30 miles northeast of Chattanooga. And at that time, there was a railroad. So he would simply go two weekends a month up to this little church and pastor, and he discovered who was at that church, but Ellen Jarnigan, the person that he was interested in. The thing is, he was pastor, though. And what do you do? How do you court a girl when you're only there on weekends and you're the pastor? He did have a few <laughs> conversations with her, but she was so quiet and so self-controlled that he didn't know what she thought of him at all. She was a school teacher in a little school up there, and he knew that she was brilliant. And so he started asking around, what was her temper like? Was she someone that could you know, handle being a pastor's wife? And he discovered that, yes, she was a very, very calm, even-tempered person. And if you look back on that saying later, you know, I really should have been worried about about me and what she thought about me, but I had no idea. So at one point he decided, I've tried everything. I've tried to get alone with her. I can't. So he simply wrote her a letter to propose. And it was a really funny letter. And when I read it, I thought, I cannot believe that this man is writing a letter. Are you going to read it? I have a copy of it. I don't have the exact letter, but he said, I can say, truthfully, I prefer you above any woman I have ever known or seen in my life. I only ask you to grant me the privilege of giving you all the love and honor of my heart, and that I will esteem the favor of you that you give me far greater than the securement of any earthly good. And he asked her not to refuse him, because he used this little poem, he said, the flower of love, once blighted, never blooms again. So basically, he didn't even know she would like him. He's going, please, I'm in love with you. Please marry me. (laughs) And so, isn't that a scream? I just, I'm sitting here thinking of a young man today and the lost art of of romance sometimes. Uh Man, I would love to hear from listeners that have heard some romantic gesture like that today. I think this is something we need to teach our our sons, that they would be so caring and romantic with their wives. Isn't that what we as women crave? (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. And, you know, he told her in the letter, I would have rather talked to you, but I couldn't find you anywhere by yourself. And so if you'd like me to come talk to you face to face, I will. But I would rather you just tell me yes or no by letter. (laughs) He was a little bit uh, shy himself. I wonder if his... If her father would have seen that as texting. <laughs> Nowadays, well, you know, I, they text back and forth to, to set a date or, or even to break up or something like this. And, and this fellow is mailing a letter. 
but it's something that's in your hand. Yeah. It's, you know, it's real. It's like you have it now. Yeah. How many years later? Gosh, must be what, five generations later and you're holding a letter. Well, yeah, this was 1861. Her father was actually mm-hmm. dead. He had been a senator at that, you know, but he died before this actually happened. So she talked about her mother approving of the suit. Oh, wow. Yes. She actually said, I will state that your suit meets with the approbation of my mother. Wow. And the formality of the, the language is amazing to me. And yet they didn't consider that as unusual. Mm-mm. Can you repeat her words to him? She said, I will state that this, your suit meets with the approbation of my mother. Wow. Okay, continue. Okay. Well, I'll read a little bit of the first part of it. I would have acknowledged the reception of your letter sooner, but I suppose you'd be absent from Chattanooga before I could reply. I will also speak in terms as plain and frank as your own. And so she goes on to say that she would accept his proposal, which, you know, I don't know if I could do that when I had just known the man and had not had any interaction with him privately. I think I would have been a little uncomfortable, but apparently she knew enough about him that she felt comfortable. I would say the same thing. It's like you want to have a chance to to get to know somebody. And I don't know why, but my mind is continually comparing this story with the stories we see today, even these reality TV shows, you know, The Bachelor or something like that, where the fellow or the bachelorette, where they have choices of, of up to 25 people, and they really don't have a chance to get to know any of them properly. If you've followed any of those things, my, my girls used to watch those uh, in high school. Mm-hmm. I would watch them with them because I wanted to discuss with them the way a man should treat a woman. I wanted to discuss with mm-hmm. them what what our society allows versus what is actually appropriate. We see here through these letters of this young pastor pressing forward in his pursuit of his ideal woman through very appropriate means, you know, looking for ways to connect with her in in physical form by by just getting alone with her just to talk. And yet that's not, not available. And so he writes to her and he waits for his, her mother's approval. And, you know, these kinds of things, they seem old fashioned, but they're still very appropriate today and how we should go about, you know, connecting with an individual in a real manner. We also see that relationships that don't take time to get to know each other, or at least, follow the proper channels where there are safety checks in place, a parent, Mm -hmm. a a guardian, um, other people who know that person or know of them, checking out what they do for a living, finding out who Mm -hmm. their people are. These kinds of things can really protect a young lady, a young man as well, from making some devastating mistakes. Well, they married shortly after that. I mean, the next letter is a lot longer and they began to exchange letters, but it wasn't long before they were married. By the next year, they were married, and of course, the Civil War breaks out almost immediately. He ended up getting a church in Chattanooga, and that's where he stayed during the entire war. Because he said, I, God called me to Chattanooga. He didn't call me to leave. So he stayed during the entire war. They had 16 children, and of those, eight lived <laughs> to adulthood. Let's see, six, six died in childhood. 16, six died in child, childbirth, you know, when they were very little. And then two lived to, you know, young adulthood. And the, the other eight 
lived longer and had children of their own. So there, And there's pictures that you can see of them with their boys. There is a school in Chattanooga now called Macaulay School that one of their, there's several of their boys put together, and then a girl put together a school for girls. So their influence in Chattanooga was considerable because despite having all wow. those children, she was involved in the community a lot. She took care of patients that came through either Union or Confederate soldiers during the war. She had anybody in her home that wanted to be there um, that might have ill or needed a place to stay or was destitute or any pastor that came through. And her kids were not allowed to say a thing to make them decide they wanted to leave. I've read some of her daughter's letters as well. They weren't allowed to say a thing about what? About the guests and how long they might stay because some of the guests were not very pleasant and they kind of wished they would leave. They were never allowed to say, when are you leaving? And is it going to be soon? And we're tired, you know, they were never allowed to say that because they were. (laughs) There's the old, the historic way of telling a guest they've stayed too long by leaving a pineapple on their bed. Right. (laughs) And there were some crazy people that came through apparently. Wow. (laughs) They were. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. One of the daughters that was born that I talk about her in the book, her name was Mary. No, I guess that's the second book, the one that hasn't come out. But during the Civil War, they did have a daughter named Mary who lived to be 19 before she died. And so that will be in my second, the prequel to the book that's now out. But you know, she was active and looking out for people. They always took soup to the to the hospital in town to the to the soldiers who were sick, and they were always doing stuff for people through the entire Civil War. Amazing people. That, now they're very inspiring. The children who lived longer but passed away did they pass because they caught uh, many of the diseases or things at the time? Did in any of the children, you know, what were some of the reasons that they lost those children? I think the the one boy that they lost, the, his father thought that he had consumption, which was tuberculosis. The daughter, right. Mary, was 19, and someone said they thought she had pneumonia. So, mm-hmm. you know, they just couldn't treat things back then, and if you got sick, you could die. I mean, that was just the truth of it, but they did have a bunch of guys. So Chattanooga is now full of Macaulay's because they did have so many boys. <laughs> it's astonishing when you think about it, even the possibility that one family could survive because of the fact that there was so much disease and wars and an injury or things like this that could take you out. But the fact that mm-hmm. the Macaulay's lost so many and yet thrive, mm-hmm. it's amazing. It's wonderful. How do they play in this book? Well, in How much this of the book story do we wrote, hear? Oh, they're, they're in the story throughout it because he's the pastor of the church and she is helping the main character with her nursing. The the main character of the book is Mary Beth Roper, and her father is dying, and he is the banker of the town, and the other guy is the partner in the bank. And he's trying to run a bank after just getting out of college without any experience in the midst of a war. And they learn that they have to pursue God. The name of the book is Pursuing Gold. They learn to pursue God because they had to pursue gold to keep the bank alive. Um, It was Mm -hmm. a Confederate bank, and they had begun to go toward paper money because the banks had loaned their gold to the government, and they had to print paper money. And he determined he was not going to do that, that he was going to stay on the gold standard. But someone is counterfeiting money against their bank. Uh There was a bank in Chattanooga, but I created my own. Everything else about Confederate banking is accurate. Every mm-hmm. bank that was in the Confederacy died except one because they loaned their money to the Confederacy, and that made them go south when the Confederacy lost. They didn't have any money of their own. This bank mm-hmm. is my bank that I created, and I'm going to have it survive. Only one of them survived, and it was in New Orleans. The truth is that there was, in the Confederacy, there was a reality 
of this counterfeiting going on, which is kind of behind your story, correct? Yes, that was going on all over the all over the place. They were counterfeiting money. It was because it's very easy to counterfeit paper money, and they were having to print them so quickly anyway because they had to have something to spend. So yes, it was a very common problem. They had to just ignore it and keep going. They were fighting a war. Yeah, yeah. And so now with the the family that is still in existence today, do you know anything about the the Macaulay family today? The Macaulay family is still in Chattanooga. There are numerous uh, members of the family. And in fact, when I wrote about Grace Macaulay, I met a a girl who's, I think the Macaulay's were her great-great-grandparents, and she had all the papers that belonged to the Macaulay's, the papers and the pictures and so on. Oh, my goodness. So, there, yeah, there are a number of Macaulay's still there and, you know, all around because there were so many guys. And, you know, each of them have two or three kids, and then pretty soon you've got a lot of Macaulay's. And to me, that is still amazing through all of the adversity and the fact that this Macaulay family was so warm and loving and giving to their community around them with so much loss. You know, you said six mm-hmm. children passed away very, very young. Yes. Yes, six children died in childhood, and then two two other ones got to got through college basically, and then died. And then the others lived to adulthood and married, and so on. Amazing! I'm going to point out the obvious. She must have really loved him. Think about the oh, the, obvi- yes, yes. Oh my goodness! We have six children together, four mine, two his, and something I don't talk about a lot. I lost one prior to the child being born alive. And I cannot imagine losing six children. That that would be all of our combined children. And yet it, nowadays we hear so much that that can easily break a family up to lose a child. And yet there must have been a deep, deep love and faith between these people and faith in their Lord because it not only did not break them apart, they continued in ministry toward others outward in volunteerism. And it just, I love stories like that because those are the people we aspire to be like to make our country be so wonderful, to make ourselves be people that uh, have a legacy as well. Yeah, you know, when in his memoir, he comments on the loss of his children being one of the crises in his life. In his life, he mm-hmm. goes through a list of different crises, and that's one of them. He names all the children. So it was oh, obviously, it broke his heart. Particularly the Mary at 19, he talked about her death and how he had knelt by her bed and prayed. He even told, he even wrote the prayer out that he had prayed. Do you have that? Yeah. While you're doing that, I just want to tell people a little bit about you. So you look up that. Listeners, if you want to learn more about Cindy, um, she goes by Cindy, regular life, and uh, but her name is Cynthia L. Simmons on her books. And she is the author of Pursuing Gold, set in the Civil War era. I'm just thrilled that we get to share this with this Chattanooga, Tennessee native who gets to share more about the history of her town and the people of her town and people that we can admire and aspire to be like. She has a husband and five children and resides in Atlanta right now. She's a Bible teacher, a former homeschool mom, and she writes a column for Leading Hearts magazine. Love that magazine, by the way. 
and she conducts writing workshops. She's served as a past president of the Christian Authors Guild and directs the Atlanta Christian Writing Conference. So if you need a writing conference to go to to learn about, we'll have Cindy tell you real quickly about that as well. And Cindy's fond of history and offers young ladies the elegance of God's wisdom. She hosts Heart of the Matter Radio and co-founded Homeschool Answers, and her author website is clsimmons.com. So I wanted to make sure we got all that in there. So if people were looking for you, would like to go to your conference, would like to listen to your show, I wanted them to be able to connect. But did you have a chance to find that prayer where he was praying for his daughter? Yes, it says, Father, if this request of mine be not possible, and if thou art now about to take her, grant me some portion of thy word on which I may lean in this awful trial that is coming upon us. Immediately this text flashed into my mind, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's so beautiful. If Mm -hmm. our fathers prayed for us, if our husbands pray for our daughters, imagine the beauty that they'll be praying into their lives. And for that daughter to be able to hear that as she's going into the arms of the Lord, I can only imagine the comfort it brought her. The other thing I notice in that prayer is that he gives over the result to God. And I know that we often try to make the result happen ourselves. I'm one of those uh, type A personalities. and, And I think you must be too. Are you a type A? I'm a type A. I have to go all the time. I'm always either reading or writing or even knitting. I have to do something with my hands. Yeah, I'm a constant go, go, go person. And I'm trying to come into a place that gives me more balance, more rest, more uh, ability to continue to connect in the real world with people like this, like having great conversations with people about people that we could admire that have forged a path for us to be able to even be here. I want to hear a little bit about Atlanta Christian Writing Conference and anything you would like to tell us. Well, my book came out for Sun Gold, and I also have my radio, which is for women who are seeking the elegance of God's wisdom. I address women in the church, and I sometimes use history to do it. And then I direct the Atlanta Christian Writers Conference. And I'm going to also be um, working on a, a book on Susanna Spurgeon now, who was the wife of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, as well as a sequel to Pursuing Gold. How do people find the uh, Christian Writing Conference and retreat? We are under ChristianAuthorsGuild.org on the Internet, and we're also part of Word Weavers with Eva Marie Everson. We're kind of coming under her Word Weavers because we discovered that was one thing that our group did not do well is critique well. So we, we're a separate group as well, but we also do the Word Weavers. And so I'm putting the conference this year into Word Weavers so that we can attract more people and kind of hook up with others and uh I think it's a great idea. I think it's a really great area for anybody because we we range, a lot of people tend to go from critique into criticism, and criticism doesn't really help anybody. Critique is when you're not only speaking the truth in love, but you're pointing out aspects that can be improved in a way that is workable and action items versus just criticizing and and breaking people down. Uh, A lot of times criticism goes uh, very personal, whereas Critique is action items where you see something that can be improved. Thank you, Cindy. Cynthia L. Simmons with her book, Pursuing Gold. And I am Angela Breidenbach. My website is AngelaBreidenbach.com, B-R-E-I-D-E-N-B-A-C-H, talking about true stories 
of people from our history to help us be not only inspired and go forward into our lives with great ideas that come from the past, but also to connect us to those people who have helped us to become who we are. Be sure to listen in and share it with your friends. So thank you, Cindy, for being with us. If you have ideas, send them our way. You can find me at Ange Breidenbach, A-N-G-B-R-E-I-D-E-N-B-A-C-H, on almost any social media. Stay right where you are. There's more Lit Up right after this. Does your past haunt you? Do you feel helpless sometimes? Are deep wounds still hurting your heart? Discover how the troubles from your past have prepared you for a beautiful future in Gems of Wisdom by Angela Breidenbach. In Gems of Wisdom, you'll learn how to forgive emotional pirates, better manage negative people, tough situations, and face your fears. Become the woman of courage, confidence, and candor you want to be. Get your copy of Gems of Wisdom, the treasure of experience today, wherever books are sold, or at Angela Breidenbach. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to Lit Up on iTunes. You can subscribe also on toginet.com. It's all about having a more lucrative, creative career and picking the brains of experts that have walked those steps ahead of you. And be sure to share it with someone else that you know is really interested in building a lucrative, creative career. We're glad you're back for more Lit Up. Now here's your host, Angela Breidenbach. If you ever dreamed of doing anything in the writing industry, or you're just really curious about the people in the writing industry, this is a show for you. You can find me at Ange Breidenbach, A-N-G-B-R-E-I-D-E-N-B-A-C-H, on almost any social media. We have Rebecca DiMarino on our show. Her tagline is Love, Legends, and Lore. And we are going to get into that a little bit now because Rebecca is going to share with us how her ancestors met and fell in love, and how she used that in her book, To Follow Her Heart, that came out in July of 2016. This book is um, published by Ravel and Baker, and it's about the duty in love. Only one has the power to make Patience Terry's life complete in a world of high seas, tall ships, daring journeys, and yearning hearts. Doesn't that make you want to hear the story? Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is going to be so awesome because I understand you did some genealogy to find out more about your ancestors, and you landed on your ninth great-grandparents. Can you tell us a little bit about how you discovered that story? Well, it really starts with my mother, who grew up hearing stories about our ninth great-grandparents. Um, it was all pretty much handed down orally uh, through the oral tradition, and we knew that he had come from England on a little ship called the Swallow, uh, but we didn't know too much more. And my brother, who became interested in genealogy in uh, the 1990s, he is actually the one that discovered each generation that led back to Barnabas, and he didn't have documentation in place, but uh, he found enough supporting evidence that it did link us with Barnabas. And my mother, who was born a Horton, um, got very excited, and we discovered there was a lighthouse on Long Island named after Barnabas, and she wanted to go see it. So in 1999, I flew out to uh, South Hold, Long Island with my mom, 
and we went to the lighthouse, which was commissioned by George Washington in the uh, 1700s. Now, really? And Mary came over in the 1600s, but George Washington was on Long Island uh, during the Revolutionary War, and he commissioned the land that was uh, Horton Land for the lighthouse, and it was built in the 1800s and named after Barnabas Horton. Did Barnabas actually build the lighthouse, or did did he have someone else build the lighthouse? No, it was actually built by the U- U.S. Lighthouse Services in 1857. A bit after Barnabas, um, but it was the the visit to the lighthouse that sparked my interest in our history in the family. I began to learn more about Barnabas and Mary when they came over in the 1630s. Did they meet in England or did they meet in the U.S.? They met in England, uh, in Mousley, England. They married in England as well. Barnabas was a widower, a very recent widower, when he married Mary. And that, uh, I discovered as I researched it, that his first wife had died in 1629, and mm-hmm. he married my ninth great grandmother, Mary Langton Horton, just months later. He had two small sons, Joseph and Benjamin, and he was a baker. In those days, they remarried quite quickly due to the needs of having a mother for the children. So, what I thought about when I thought about their story, I thought it must have been very difficult at first. And about five years later, they made the journey. They left family and home and came over to New England. What I imagined was it wasn't all sugar and roses. It it had to have been very difficult and probably a marriage of convenience. Mary was a young woman when she married him without children of her own. It was a first marriage for her. So when you're writing a novel based in the 1600s, (laughs) (laughs) about real people, you take the facts that you know, the fact that he was a widower, had two little boys, and remarried very quickly, and then you apply the goals and the motivations and the desires that your characters might have had. Uh, So I wrote my story that Mary had fallen in love with the baker, and he married her while he was still grieving. Right. That's that's fascinating to me because... I have a very similar story, which is my own grandparents, and they married because of town gossip. He was a widower, and they married very quickly after, and the reason was that the town gossiped so much that they had to save her reputation. They didn't believe in any outward appearance of evil, which is, you know, very biblical. In our modern sensibilities, we don't have a concept or an understanding of that kind of motivation, because we don't consider the appearance of evil the same as they did uh, historically, and even in modern history, because my grandparents married in 1930. So here we are 300 years after your ninth great-grandparents, and it's still very relevant, but then we move forward, we're, what, 90 years later, almost, you know, (laughs) and that is no longer something in modern memory. Isn't that fascinating? That's true. Although I would say that people still get married probably for the wrong reasons. I think I think some of it still still holds true that 
you know, there might not, there might be a, a different set of viewpoints on values and what is considered proper or, but I think that the problems that Mary and Barnabas experienced when it was a marriage of convenience instead of for love, could be still relevant today for people who have married for financial security or for other reasons that mm-hmm. might exist. Escaping a difficult family situation, thinking that they're going yeah. to go into something better. Um, now tell me something. Back in England, about this time, a lot of the pilgrims were coming over. Were they pilgrims? Barnabas was a Puritan. And so exactly. they were they came over during the Great Migration during the sixteen thirties. So the pilgrims on the Mayflower, as we think of the pilgrims, came over in the sixteen twenties. Mm-hmm. And then in the sixteen thirties began what was referred to as the Great Migration, and that was basically Puritans and some Quakers that were experiencing persecution. And they came over, many with the idea that they would start a new church, uh, many with the idea that they would not uh, start a new church, but have the Church of England become what they perceived it should be. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was conformists and nonconformists, and Barnabas was a nonconformist, and Mary, in my novel, give it a little tension. I I wrote her as an Anglican maiden, and I did that on purpose because <laughs> every novel needs some conflict. <laughs> so you don't so, know that Mary was Anglican. You added that to the tension of the story. Right. What what I could there there was much more information about Barnabas. Um, they were large landowners. In fact, they were the largest landowner in Mousley, England. How do you spell that? Just so people can kind of look it up if they want to on a map. It's M-O-W-S-L-E-Y. Just like it sounds. Just like it sounds. And, well, and even uh, the ancient spelling was M-O-U-S-E-L-Y. So on his tombstone, which is in Southhold, Long Island, it is spelled uh, with the M O U S L Y, <laughs> which gave me a little fit. But um, when I was trying to find if I was really at the right uh, place that he was from, but yes, it has a modern day spelling. You know, and this is an interesting thing. I one of the things that's fascinating about spelling is that we, again, in our modern sensibilities, here's your genealogy tip, folks. We think that things are spelled properly all the way through history, and they're not. I have an ancestor that came over in um, the 1600s, right around that time as well, I think uh, maybe prior to yours, and his name was John Biglow, B-I-G-L-O. And now the name Biglow has morphed into B-I-G-E-L-O-W. You might know it from Biglow Tea, Biglow Carpets. Yes, they are my distant cousins. Yeah, But so here's the tip to folks out there. Make sure that you don't get so hung up on the spelling that you miss the trail that you're searching for. Because like Rebecca just pointed out, even a town or a location name could be spelled differently. And it might have been spelled Mousley, M-O-U-S-E-L-Y, or it could have been spelled L-E-Y. But the reason is quite often they had people writing things that either they didn't know how to spell or it was the anglicized version versus the new Americanized version. You know, there's a lot of different things that come into play. 
even handwriting. And then we go also from the country. So say that town was named by a person from France or from, you know, a different country in the arena of that area. And that also affect the spelling. So don't be so hung up on your spelling that you miss the trail you're searching for and be willing to look for different spellings that just don't even make sense to you because S's, the letter S as in sugar, were often spelled looking like the letter, our modern letter F as in Frank. So there's a lot of things. Even if you're looking up mousely, you might, it might actually look visually like M-O-U-F as in Frank. Yep. So there's your tip for the day, and I'm going to ask Rebecca to... Because <laughs> it's true for first names, surnames, uh, <laughs> locations. That's true. Yeah. So now, how did you actually stumble on these people? It was it, back in Southhold. When we went to see the lighthouse, we also visited the library and the historical society. Uh, mm-hmm. Both great places for when you're uh, trying to trace your genealogy. And there was so much information about Barnabas, not so much about Mary. Barnabas built the first timber-framed house in Southhold on the, I should say, on the eastern half of Long Island. His grave is right across from the site of the house in the cemetery with a big blue slab of slate that covers it. It was re-lettered in the 1800s. And you can still read what they say he wrote his own epitaph. And a Bible really? verse that was on it was Hebrews 11.4, he being dead yet speaketh. And I thought, wow, in, in this epitaph, he talked basically to the future generations of his children. And then when I went home and kept thinking about Mary, So I had all this information about Mary, and I wanted to give her a voice because the women that came over during that time period were very courageous to leave family and home and what they knew to a wild new land, and I just really wanted to give her and the other women a voice. And that's what got me started on the series. Now, my latest book, Follow Her Heart, is the third book in the series, and what mm-hmm. I did for the series is I took the Hortons and Southhold Long Island up a decade each time. What I knew from the genealogy was that on the ship called the Swallow that they came over on, Barnabas's brother, Jeremy, was actually the captain. And, oh, uh, interesting. Yes. I thought that was very, it had to be pretty unusual but he brought his uh, brother and his brother's family over. And so the third book I wrote with Jeremy as being my hero. Yay. Stay right where you are. There's more Lit Up right after this. Has anyone ever said to you, man, that'd make a good story? Or you should put that down on paper, but you don't feel like you can do it. Those fears in your head, I can't let anyone read my stories. Who cares about what I have to say? Who would read anything I wrote anyway? I'm not special enough or original enough. If those are the fears flying through your mind like a plague of locusts, eating up your confidence each time you sit down to write, all those fears and more boil down to one problem, feeling unworthy. But you are worthy. 
God gave you a voice and all those ideas swirling in your head for a reason. To write them so that you can make a difference in the world, so that you can touch another person's heart. Let's tackle those fears together, because you are worthy to write. Pick up your copy of Worthy to Write on Amazon, in ebook or in paperback. Does your past haunt you? Do you feel helpless sometimes? Are deep wounds still hurting your heart? Discover how the troubles from your past have prepared you for a beautiful future in Gems of Wisdom by Angela Breidenbach. In Gems of Wisdom, you'll learn how to forgive emotional pirates, better manage negative people, tough situations, and face your fears. Become the woman of courage, confidence, and candor you want to be. Get your copy of Gems of Wisdom, the treasure of experience today, wherever books are sold, or at Angela Breidenbach. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to Lit Up on iTunes. You can subscribe also on toginet.com. It's all about having a more lucrative, creative career and picking the brains of experts that have walked those steps ahead of you. And be sure to share it with someone else that you know is really interested in building a lucrative, creative career. We're glad you're back for more Lit Up. Now here's your host, Angela Breidenbach. Now, let's go back to, to Mary and Barnabas. Did you, by chance, find any uh, journals or letters? Or Because, you know, George Washington is involved here. Was there possibly anything that was preserved historically about Mary and Barnabas's um, life or love letters or journals or family letters? I would have so much loved to have something like that. Um, unfortunately, there are no uh, primary documents that exist like that, of that nature in Southhold. They did have a fire that destroyed records, but also the women, so now remember, they came over in the 1600s, and George Washington was like a century later when he commissioned that property to be become the site of the lighthouse. Back in the It's 1600s, interesting how long that took for them coming over in the 1600s. George Washington is more the late 1700s, and then the yes. lighthouse wasn't built, they said, until 1857? Right. It was finally built in 1857. And No one uh, was left alive that was the original part of this, and yet it still can't. This is the whole point of telling these stories. I want everybody listening to capture this thing right here. Mary and Barnabas, 1630s. George Washington, late 1700s, they all together created this legacy of love that creates something that is still standing today that drew Rebecca to learn. And that's what I want to instill in in all of us is that depth of generational continuity that you today can do the same thing that Barnabas and Mary did back in the 1630s and that George Washington did in the late 1700s and that somebody who built the lighthouse in the middle of the 1800s, that's a huge amount of time. You can be that too. Okay. Excellent point. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) What else do we know about Mary and Barnabas that um, get into their love story for us? Well, they did come over with Barnabas's two little boys, and then they uh, they came to Massachusetts first and spent about two years there, and then they came down with the Reverend Youngs uh, to to build the church in Southhold, and it was under the authority of the church in New Haven. They pretty much created the the township there, 
And Barnabas, along with 12 other families, Barnabas and Mary and 12 other families, were the founding families. Mary had to have been very supportive of of Barnabas. And I don't know her role other than the role of every other woman probably in the town, and that would have been working from dawn until they went to bed late at night, keeping the home fires going and providing food and um, tending the gardens, milking the cow. (laughs) Uh, They worked very hard, and that's one of the reasons why they didn't have much time to write a diary or really record what they were doing. There's very few diaries from that that time period, except for perhaps in Plymouth, Alice Bradford did keep a diary. And she was the wife of the governor, so she probably had a little bit more ease. Not much, but perhaps a little bit more. So she she was very supportive of that. In my novel, what what oh what, one fact I do know about Barnabas, he went on to be a magistrate. He was very involved in the town's government and uh, in the church. So uh, as a baker, he was probably splitting his duties. So in my story, Mary steps in and really becomes the baker of the town. Oh, wow. There's a change. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I, I felt like with what I knew as fact about Barnabas once he came to Southhold, um, I couldn't picture him spending his days in front of the oven. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was really interesting because as you're talking about your family and how they came over and what they all did and how there's, you know, different, some documentation from other people's records. And I told you about John Biglow, my original ancestor that came over from, from England. He and his wife were the first documented marriage in Massachusetts. And I thought, yeah, isn't that cool? (laughs) And then I'm descended from their son, Joshua, you know, goes down that line. But when you start to find, this is what fascinated me about hearing these stories and about hearing your story is that if these people hadn't married and loved, we wouldn't be here today. And I know that sounds really, you know, duh, but the reality is this is all Like you said, these women had courage. Why would somebody want to go on a ship across the ocean at that time? They didn't even know if they'd arrive alive due to disease, dysentery, the the rickets that were going on. Then they'd get here and they, they don't realize what they don't know. And one of the things they don't realize that they don't know is this is a different climate, a different soil, and the seeds that they've brought won't grow. Here we have women that have, like your Mary, who's agreed to be the mother of two little boys and come across the ocean, and now she's got to figure out how to feed her family with her husband. And can you imagine what she, they, they put their pillows, you know, their heads on their pillows at night and look at each other. Did they go to bed hungry? Did they go to bed upset with each other? Did they go to bed clinging to each other saying, we'll make it through, you know? Right. Yeah. It's, uh, that's what I, I really think about when I think about Barnabas and Mary coming over is that they didn't know what would meet them on the other side of the ocean. They didn't, mm-hmm. they heard stories and some of them were horror stories, you know, 
but uh, they didn't really know what what would meet them. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. I think that fact that our families did descend. I you mentioned about one little turn of events, and we wouldn't be here. Um, I took my sisters back to Southhold, Long Island, and took them up to the Historical Society. To, and I was doing some research, and my sisters were getting to see Southhold for the first time. And the director there uh, was talking about, you know, his ancestors. And my sister said, "Well, I I don't really care so much about genealogy or the past." And he said. Well, I didn't either until I realized that one little turn of events and I wouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs> it's so. true. And it's beautiful when you start to look at statistically, we are all an anomaly. It's just astonishing that, that we could exist and be here. And so I think telling these love stories like this, are, it's really important, not only for a sense of belonging, but also for that sense of wonderment, how these people, their, uh, how do you, you know, their faith even, how do you equate what they did and their faith life? And we have about three minutes left. Well, I think that what they had to depend on and learn if they didn't know it to begin with, but I suspect they knew it, is that God is always with us, you know, if we ask him to, he'll hold our hand and go through all of life's journeys. And that was especially important back then, and their faith was important to them. And I think it's depending on God to walk with you and be with you. you I know, can see he gives that. us a free will, but whatever path we choose, we need him with us. I could see them, you know, going to bed at night, not knowing if their crops were going to grow or if they were going to find, you know, uh, a deer or even a wild boar to be able to feed their families, you know, or if they could acquire livestock. And I could see them um, clinging to each other at night, just just praying, God, can you help us provide for the kids tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. You know, they had to depend thing. on him. Yep. And then the kids having to learn to be a part of that subsistence living and, and that coming over from England, you know, were they wealthy in England and then arriving here? Wealth didn't really matter, did it? It didn't matter so much. Although um, what I discovered with uh, Barnabas and I'm sure other little townships and colonies were set up the same way. He was the largest landowner in Mousley and he wound up being the largest landowner in Southhold, and that was because of his wealth. And that was pretty curious to me because he was a baker. So I handled that in my books, though. Fascinating <laughs> thing for people to read. <laughs> well, Rebecca, tell us, what's your next book? Uh, yes, I, I just finished um, my fourth novel, and it's once again... A love story, and it's once again based on real people, but not my ancestors, but it's set in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and mm -hmm. uh, my agent has it at the moment, and we're going to see where it goes from there. And then my next project is about Betty Zane, who is uh, a Revolutionary War hero. She was 16 years old when she ran through enemy fire with some more gunpowder so that the Woo! fort in Wheeling so, could be saved. 
<laughs> you said Betty Zane. So if you're listening and your ancestor was a part of the American Revolution, then uh, this may be a story about your family. Thank you so much, Rebecca DiMarino. And uh, you can find her at RebeccaDiMarino.com. And you can find me at AngelaBreidenbach.com. And that's B-R-E-I-D-E-N-B-A-C-H. And Rebecca DiMarino is D-E-M-A-R-I-N-O. You can find her on Twitter and other social media at Rebecca DiMarino. You can find me at Ange Breidenbach, A-N-G-B-R-E-I-D-E-N-B-A-C-H, on almost any social media. I hope you enjoyed today's show. We got to talk with both Cynthia L. Simmons and Rebecca DiMarino and see how two different authors used real people, real history, and genealogy to put novels together that not only entertain, but they educate. And you too can do that. Go study your history, study your genealogy, and find ways to tell the story of the people and the history you love that creates opportunity for today to be what it is. For you to be here to write your novel, you have a message to share. I hope that this show has given you the opportunity to see how other people have done it so you can too. Pick up a copy of the Captive Brides Collection today. Great historic romances, perfect for any season. You can get it online or at your favorite local retailer. Thank you so much for being with me, and I can't wait to talk with you again. Thank you for joining us on Lit Up. Light up your literary world. Expand your imagination. Enhance your life. Lit Up will be back next week with another great conversation. Join us, won't you, right here on Lit Up. There's no place I'd rather be.